Hello, welcome to Late to the Party, episode eight. This is the Geeks Unleashed monthly book club podcast, in addition to our weekly podcast where we work through what are considered some of the most essential graphic novels of all time. This month's graphic novel is The Killing Joke by writer Alan Moore, pencils, inks, and colors by Brian Bolland, and letters by Richard Starkings. Well, I'm Mark, and I'm joined as usual by my co-host Jasmine. Hello again. And we're also joined by our regular weekly guest host, Stephen Fox. Hey guys. Thanks, Stephen. Yeah. Uh, so, Stephen joins us regularly on our weekly club from time to time. And this is his first appearance on the Late to the Party book club. And in case you didn't know, Stephen does a lot of other stuff when he's not with us. Do you want to just quickly tell us about what else you do when you're not with Geeks Unleashed? Yeah, I um, I just love comics. I write and draw and, and do all that kind of stuff intermittently on the side. Um, Fox Storytelling, that's where I, what I am everywhere uh, Instagram, Facebook, and uh, YouTube. So, yeah, it's that's uh, just where I put all of my drawings and and random thoughts. So, <laughs> so go go check Stephen out there. All right, so we're jumping right in. We are tackling a big one, kind of. It's a small as far <laughs> as like content goes, but it is a uh, big book. And as far as reputation, we are doing Batman: The Killing Joke. Uh, we all read some version or other of the deluxe edition. Uh, we also watched the film, but we are going to focus more so on the book than on the film itself. Mm-hmm. So this book was originally published back in 1988. Um, it was a standalone graphic novel and it featured a high quality production standards that were not usually typical for comics of the era. The Killing Joke was a revolutionary work due to its exploration of mature themes that's an understatement, Uh, (laughs) the establishment of a Joker origin story and just overall quality. Uh, The Killing Joke existed only as a comic book for decades until a similarly named animated film was released in 2016. So it had been untouched, unadapted, all of those things until 2016. Um, So basically the, the animated version kind of adapts the main story pretty faithfully, but it did add 30 minutes of its own (laughs) content which we will get to i promise um so this is kind of new because this is the first time we're doing a book club where it's actually a reread for all of us uh normally it's kind of like oh we're reading stuff that we've never read before which is kind of the point to late to the party so this one was interesting because we'd all read it years and years ago at some point and then uh to kind of read it again with a different adult lens we all kind of had different feelings so going to jump right in on that topic there as the how it was reading it the first time versus giving it a go this time around yeah i i was gonna say i'll go first because i remember reading it when i was 14 and 14 was when i first got into comics and um people probably heard me talk about this before where my first what got me into comics was spider-man i love spider-man and one of my friends had said did you know Spider-Man was a clone and kind of walked into the comic shop reading about the clone saga and started reading X-Men. And I used to watch the nineties animated TV series of the X-Men and Spider-Man. So basically I liked as a 14 year old would family friendly stuff. I'm kind of trying to set where my bar was in terms of what I enjoyed and what I knew about. 
And then I remember the guy who got me into comics, a guy called Liam, he says, oh, do you want to read? The, he lends me this book, The Killing Joke. Do you want to read this? I was like, yeah, sure. And I was like, read it. Read, I read it and gave it straight back. And I was like, no, this isn't for me. <laughs> and, um, and, and I don't mean that in terms of I'm not capable of reading it and understanding it. I was like, this is just beyond what I like. Like, I remember just how uncomfortable I felt as a a 14 year old reading this material that it was just no way. Like, and when I read this now, would I hand this to a 14 year old? No way would I really hand this to a 14 year old. (laughs) And um, it it obviously covers extreme adult content and Mm -hmm. just, just some of the, some of the material that's covered in this book. I'm like reading it now as a 39 year old, still extremely uncomfortable reading it and I, I can't imagine everything I would have thought about them but I just remember feeling really disgusted and horrible reading this so I was like no I need to get this thing as far away from me as possible so, like, <laughs> uh, so I handed it back but that was kind of what I thought then but reading it now my thoughts are actually the story for such impact and we're going to cover the impact as we go through it but for the impact it made for such a short story like and the i've got the deluxe edition which has actually got like a four a forward and afterward it's got like a couple of short stories at the back i didn't read any of that stuff i just concentrated <laughs> on that actually just actually yeah. uh, i just want to read... that's the point of a reread you go back and you read the stuff you didn't read the first time no no but this is all extra stuff they've thrown in like, i just <laughs> wanted to read the killing joke i didn't want to read any of the afterword and the forward and the, and the sort i did look at the because they had a lot of the um in this book they had a lot of the sketches and designs and yeah. things like that i liked all of that yeah. I, I like all of the kind of the transition from sketches to mm. finished item i liked all of that stuff but so i sat down and i actually read all of this the other day in the park which is quite nice i've read a book in a park for for years i can't remember the last time i've read a book in a park so i sat down and read all of this in a park and i was like oh wow i actually read this within like less than an hour it's like yeah. unlike a lot of our other book club ones where like V for Vendetta, which took me about five days to read. Yeah. And, uh, like, <laughs> but um, yeah, a short story with such a massive impact. And yeah, okay, there was dark tones in here. And I'd forgotten about some of the extreme dark tones, which, because again, it was 25 years ago that I read this book. So that's kind of my sort of verses, you know, my original thoughts. But yeah, my original reading over now. So yeah. How about you, yeah. Stephen? Yeah, honestly, when I, I was, I still remember I was on the back of my school bus waiting to get home. And uh, a guy like 17, 18, he saw me reading like, just the more, you know, like the still 35 cents uh, Marvel books that were back issues even back then. And uh, he showed it to me. And I was just, uh, I was completely enthralled, honestly. Um, the artwork I had never seen, I had never seen comic art like that in a traditional superhero book. Um, I didn't read it, but like he, I remember he showed me specific uh, sections and like he, the end, um, he talks, you know, he fast forwarded to the end and he was like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen where the Joker and Batman are talking and they laugh together. And, you know, those moments, those kind of very Alan Moore moments where he takes these things that we, these relationships we take for granted and kind of skews them for a second and we're like oh that, you know i never really i never even considered that would be possible that a, a hero and a villain could have a conversation those elements of the book really drew me in um so that my, that was my initial exposure and honestly i was more blown away by brian bolland the artist than any of the writing just because that's my nature i i tend to to be a more much more 
uh, focused on the art than a lot of people in modern, you know, modern comic readers. Um, so yeah, that was kind of my first exposure. Um, so, and uh, as far as now, um, I have very, you know, very thorough opinions on it. Um, I think that, I think that the quality is undeniable, um, but there, it, there is a, a lot to say about the comic that's not frequently said, or at least uh, when I run across reviews for this material. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's part of, that's part of what compelled me to really want to talk about it because it's, um, it's easy to take for granted uh, the reputation of Alan Moore and just kind of let it skate. And I feel like that's kind of what has happened with this particular book. Um, and I just would like to, you know, I'm excited for us to kind of talk about. To explore all of that. Yeah. Mm. So. Um, so I was very, very late to picking up this book. The first time I read it, um was 2014 and i picked it up because i was in the midst of collecting sort of the blackest night saga with the green lanterns and the black lanterns and all of that stuff and i for you know i i was browsing and it was like if you like this maybe you'll like this and i was like oh (laughs) i've never heard of this batman story before Uh, so i picked it up blind not knowing what it was or what it was about and i remember reading it the first time and i was like I mean, I always knew Joker was dark. Yeah. I didn't know that he was like this kind of dark. Yeah. Um, And even just rereading it again, I think rereading it again this time around, it was, it was not much change for me, but there's not that much distance for me having read it from the first time I'm, it was like seven or eight years ago. Um, So my feelings really didn't change very much. It was, it to me it caught me by surprise because i guess at the time it was just like i didn't think that comic books like superhero comic books specifically went there so to speak yeah uh so this was probably my first look at the darker side of the hero comics um and i think this was probably before i started reading stuff like saga or you know the wicked and the divine before i realized that comics was this gigantic thing that where yeah. anyone could find anything that they liked versus, you know, as, as a kid growing up, you just assume that comics are just like, they're all kind of superhero comics. So um, I would say back then it kind of opened my eyes to new content, not new, mm. not new, but like new to me. New content. types of content. Yeah, new exactly. Yeah, like, yeah. Um, in comics. Um, and this time around, it was just kind of like, <laughs> what is this? <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> what, yeah. what kind of, what kind of story are we telling here? Really? Um, yeah. Yeah, so that's that's kind of what the review was for me. Not much difference from the first time I read it, but just a little bit more clarity on why yeah. it kind of irked me the way that it did. Yeah. So um, honestly, as far as this this topic, this project, there's so many ways to talk about it that we just we broke it down into uh, four key sections that we really. Um, at least to, to attempt to tackle it. Uh, the first area that we're kind of going to talk about is called the, the legacy of the killing joke, because that is really, that's kind of the elephant in my mind, because it is, um, aside from the content of the book, it has a tremendous legacy. Um, directors, actors, anyone who comes in contact with this book, with Batman, uh, references the killing joke as one of their points of inspiration. And frequently it's like, wow, that is Batman to me. Um, and that's, you know what I mean? That's, I'm just curious um, you know, how that legacy maintains mod- in the modern era. And that transitions into the killing joke in modern context. Like, okay, so, you know, we're going through a transitional period as far as how we understand specific types of relationships, uh, the way sex has a, a dynamic relationship in all these different uh, areas of society. 
a, all of this stuff has always been true, but we're talking about it more. So it's, I feel like it's interesting to take a story like The Killing Joke and lay that on top of it. Then also, because there is an, a recent animated adaptation, whenever you adapt a work, however, the decisions that you make create commentary. So mm -hmm. um, the, the print versus the animated is another area that we're going to be talking about. And then finally, kind of the overall thoughts. Um, so <clears throat> I, if you guys are okay with it, I'll dive into the, <laughs> the first section, the legacy. Um, yeah, and please don't... Cool. Don't let me run over you guys. <laughs> um, no, no. Take, Take it away, Stephen. Yeah. <laughs> um, and honestly, to give a preface, um, I have a I have somewhat of a unique perspective on this story. Uh, when I was very young, um, and this is really heavy. So just like you know, anyone who's listening, that's you know, I when I was um, seven, eight years old, I ran across. Um, a woman who was hiding uh, from an attacker and wow. she had been through a sexual assault. I was very young. It was an invasion, like a home invasion situation. And that woman was hiding for hours because she was so afraid. Um, and as a kid, because my, because people around me were involved in trying to comfort uh, this woman and, and make sure that she was okay I was there for the police. I was there to just to see the fallout. I had a continuing relationship with this person. So like, just to give you that foundation, rape is something that is not that I, you know, as much as the phrase trigger warning is kind of thrown around and it's made light of. Um, and honestly, I've made light of that phrase before. Um, to this day, when I watch fiction and there is sexual assault, it, I can't watch it. It makes me, uh, it makes me very shaken. Um, and more than once my wife has like been really shocked because I'm just not that kind of guy. Uh, but it, I don't, it's very difficult for me to have that in a narrative and it be a side piece. Like it, to be used it, as trivial as it was in this, this whole yeah. work. Yeah. So just to give you guys that background on me specifically, I do have I do have an angled opinion on it. Um, I'm not saying that makes it invalid, but I do. I'm not even someone who suffered the sexual assault, but it frustrates me like I'm going into this. The, the overarching commentary that I have is that um, the, the huge segment of the population has been through an experience much worse than the one I went through. Um, and this story. So. Anyway, we'll get to that more into the modern context, but that's just the setup so that you guys understand my my perspective as an individual. Yeah, we don't ever promise to be unbiased uh, yeah. whenever we talk about things. It's hard to be unbiased when when you're kind of critiquing the way that things are presented. So, yeah, yeah. we're not going to st start making apologies now. So this is how, <laughs> this is how we feel, yeah. and and this is why we're having the conversation that we're having. So yeah. Well, so talking more about the specific legacy of, of the story, um, this story came out in an era when Alan Moore was redefining comics um, in a lot of different capacities. Uh, Superman, DC had gone through crisis, which was a, a timeline redefining relaunch of, of their um, titles, very similar to the New 52, but it was back in uh, 84, 85. And out of that, several of their, their main characters were launched with brand new number one issues, Superman, Action Comics, Adventures of Superman um, being, being the flagships. And they were taken over by an artist named John Byrne, who redefined the origin and relaunched it to great fanfare, and it was a huge success. 
But before that happened, Alan Moore contributed to the final issue that said goodbye to the golden age Superman. And he wrote a story called Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow. Um, that was a very, very well-received, bittersweet story that was like, it was one of the most successful goodbyes to a character uh, to introduce a new interpretation. Most of the time that splits an audience right down the middle, but um, it was universally, at least to my recollection, uh, it was really ap appreciated and, and seen as just a, a beautiful kind of end to the, to the golden age Superman. Shortly after that, um, we had Watchmen, V for Vendetta, and then The Killing Joke. And anyone who's even tangentially familiar with those titles knows what an influence they've had in, 20th, in the 21st century, uh, let alone you know, back in the 80s. Uh, when they originally came out, no one had any idea what these stories were. That was their first exposure to Alan Moore. And he has, he has just continued that trajectory um, going forward. So this particular story, <clears throat> um, so he gets the killing, he's on The Killing Joke, his name is associated with redefining comics um, in, and uh, this story did so many things that had never been done. It gave the Joker an origin, uh, which similar like Wolverine, <laughs> uh, he, that was one of the, one of the kind of mysterious appeals to the character. And <clears throat> that was something that a lot of people weren't sure about, but um, the way it was packaged with the incredible art from Brian Bolland, uh, the prestige format, the graphic novel, the graphic novels were somewhat of a novelty back in the mid eighties. And in 88, when it came out, it was, it was just a whole different level of quality um, that set a precedent that today, when you go into the comic shop every single month, there is a prestige format graphic novel hitting the shelf. Um, it's no longer, it's no longer stands alone in that capacity. Uh, it actually created a whole new type of comic book, um, especially in America. Um, and then the, the other way that I would say it kind of, it kind of redefined things was just this um, taking these superheroic characters that were uh, the comic books were in the United States for a long time considered specifically for children. Um, and that frustrated a lot of comic book professionals because these are adult men who are professionals. They're great at their job. And after crisis, DC started a marketing campaign that said DC comics aren't just for kids. And it was a very intentional pivot point um, after crisis to reintroduce comics to an older audience. And their hope was to expand the audience. The long-term effect was that it moved the audience to an, an older bracket and they actually lost a lot of those younger readers. So as a byproduct, not just The Killing Joke, but what was happening at the same time as The Killing Joke, we're aging up the audience and we're taking these characters who dress in Halloween costumes, who have this escapist kind of frame, framing device to their stories that like a kid is bossed around all day long. A kid has no ability to determine where they are, what they do in their day-to-day -day life. An escapist superhero is perfect for a kid. But then suddenly, once the demographic changes, you take this world where you can operate outside the law you can do something as a vigilante and you're considered a good guy. And then you extrapolate on top of that, these crazy mature themes. And it just completely shook the comics industry at the time. It was um, the dark Knight returns also contributed, but with Watchmen killing joke and, and uh, the dark Knight returns, it just completely uh, changed the game. In a lot of ways it was for, for good. Um, but it also reintroduced this concept of, of, uh, you know, re, imagining superheroes in a real world which uh that has some benefits and it has some drawbacks but <laughs> um 
And then the, I would also say because of that era that modern comics take a lot of notes from The Killing Joke specifically, uh, in particular Batman comics. Uh, Batman comics, it feels like they're in a perpetual state of competition with The Killing Joke. Uh, they're looking to they're looking to to maintain that kind of almost the same tone in the same world that was created in that story, and kind of kind of just continue in that world. Whereas before Batman adventures were much more diverse in their tone and their attitude. He could go to space one time and then be tracking down a murderer next month. So anyway, it was just a lot of changes all at once. So <laughs> um, anyway, it's the, the legacy of the killing joke. Um, it just has a, it's a, it's a bit, it had a big impact. Um, I mean, how do you guys remember, like, are there any big changes or big influences that you see kind of in modern modern comics or, or entertainment at large that kind of echo from The Killing Joke? You go, Justin. Well, I was just, I was going to ask instead, like, other than The Killing Joke, was there ever sort of another beloved comic character that kind of had a thing that was just so polarizing that it sort of mm -hmm. shifted an entire segment of an industry before like before before we had the killing joke were there ever any other characters that were super mainstream that just took such a turn a sharp turn that people were kind of like whoa didn't even know that this character could yeah. go there um that that's that's always kind of my question when i when i take a look at this book it's like did did was this the shift where we started to get like you said those more real world stories or you know where they start bringing a little bit more reality into the comics or or they're trying to just kind of make their characters a little bit darker because nowadays dc has their entirely different line the black label so mm. that they can put their more adult more rated r stories on an entirely separate sort of timeline and label than just the regular stuff that they put out on the shelves i think yeah. the i was gonna say from that the only thing i can really i know dc do it quite a lot they've had vertigo and they've now they've got the black label where they heavily can push the darker stuff about having the dc well i know it says dc black label now but for years vertigo would be where you could go to and i know vertigo didn't really have too many mainstream characters in where black label does have wonder woman <clears throat> i think they may have had a superman comic in there um but generally it's all the batman titles have pretty much been black label other than a few sandman and I think there's been a few horror comics like um was it the house or was it the nice house on the lake or whatever it's called i haven't read it yet but anyway yeah. um but the other but the other thing that i'm thinking of in terms of like mainstream characters is when marvel a few years ago it's probably almost 20 years ago launched their max line uh, yeah. which kind of was a bit of a spin-off from marvel knights um and in, and it kind of was where they took the punisher out of marvel knights because it was getting slightly yeah, it was sort of dark but comical, but they pushed it into the Max line. And yeah. I remember reading The Punisher in, in the Max story, and even Jessica Jones I read in the Max label as well. And it didn't say Marvel on the front, it just said Max. And um, and in Jessica Jones, you used to be able to read, they they bring characters like Spider-Woman in, and even you had like, the, you know, you had other like Luke Cage and things like that. And there's that, there's that sex scene that everyone talked about in Jessica Jones between Luke Cage and... Uh, and yeah, that was probably about the only time I've ever really seen, other than what DC does under their Black Label and Vertigo and 
some of their darker books. It's only over time I've seen stuff really gone a darker path with mainstream characters, like, like say, Punisher. And even Punisher used to just be a bit of a jokey character previously, you know, although he was a, yeah. he'd kill people. How often did he really get away with killing people when he showed up in Spider-Man and Daredevil? Probably not that often. But now when he had, it was in his Max book, yeah, people would die on sort of every third page. So, you know, <laughs> like, um, but yeah, that, that's kind of where I've seen it. But in terms of the influence, I still don't think those Max books, I mean, I know the Jessica Jones thing did eventually get its own TV series, which is, which is brilliant to have more female-led content out there. But to have the, the impact, I still think The Killing Joke is probably one of the most impactful sort of darker toned books that that's still having an impact even to today so i don't i mean yeah i agree i think with if there had never been a killing joke we would never have the trajectory of batman films that we have now yeah we we would still be stuck in the campy adam west like 1960s version of batman like without the killing joke there's no way we ever get christopher nolan's batman ever yeah well and that's and honestly to talk about like how revolutionary it was and this is based on my this is anecdotal based on my recollection and and just being a collector from late 70s you know until my adulthood but um gwen stacy's death in spider-man was the closest thing i could think of and it's not it's not close um as far as adult themes and as far as as far as exploring victimhood and and the repercussions of that the Um, impact on that is still felt to today though yeah, but it was the first. Oh, yeah. yeah, and that was the first time that like a a character was put in in real danger and then died. And she there was a question if if Spider Man's attempt to save her killed her. But like it's even that is so light by comparison. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? But I remember people being really uh, frustrated and like oh, know, Marvel got about- like thousands and thousands of yeah. letters for that. Like yeah, I mean, well that that see, I mean that, and again death of Gwen Stacy led to the the clone saga the quite uh, the, the yeah. original clone saga in the 70s uh, and then the clone saga in the 90s and now if you look at it like you know even today like you know you've only got probably spider Gwen because they were they tried to fill the hole of not having Gwen Stacy they fought they finally found a way to bring Gwen Stacy back in a way which doesn't undo the death so yeah. think about that yeah like probably the death of Gwen Stacy is a is a huge uh, impactful moment on on comic books and the legacy um but in terms of how it's told I've read that story the death of Gwen Stacy uh, I, not I haven't got the comics I've got the graphic novel upstairs but it, it's the, the I remember the coloring though is so 70s bright colors and things <laughs> like that and you know yeah. um and it's not that dark in terms of how it's written but I do remember what you're saying though because obviously his web clicks her and there's a snap so yeah. did Peter Parker kill her or was it the Green Goblin or is it both you know yeah. But to be honest, if he'd have done nothing, she would have definitely died. So what what position was he in? So yeah. But, but yeah. yeah, it's just it's um it's funny. And the truth of it is too, like, you know, <clears throat> all of the way the killing joke affected mainstream superhero comics is not necessarily a positive or a negative, but it did absolutely affect it did absolutely affect the approach that writers for modern comics took mm-hmm. um, this attempt to, ba- to base things in a more real world uh, situation to tackle things that had been reserved for like more serious quote unquote serious mediums um, you know and and honestly it attracted it attracted a lot of writers outside of comics or that may not have considered comics because it was so esteemed um, it, it gave a lot of validity to 
to American superhero comics as a medium where you could make a real legitimate literary name for yourself. Um, so, I mean, it, the impact, I, I feel like it is one of the most impactful projects in comics. Um, I, I mean, American comics ever. Um, I mean, it's up there. I think Watchmen may be the only, the only thing that is as big or greater. Um, but that's, you know, that's hyperbole in my opinion, but, <laughs> um, but yeah, there are, uh, Mark pointed out um, before we started that there have actually been repercussions in the continuity very recently with, um, with uh, the new 52 and how did they change? What were, what was kind of the fallout as far as new 52? And, and so, so obviously the killing joke has been sort of, was always slightly outside of continuity, but, and I don't know, cause I didn't, I haven't, I'm not the massive DC fanboy, but Barbara Gordon getting shot and ended up in a wheelchair was brought into mainstream DC continuity. So, yeah. um, so they, when they had the, um, I don't know if you remember birds of prey comic book, mm-hmm. um, yeah. she was, she was Oracle in the wheelchair for years. Um, I had read some of that and I used to read DC. I, to be honest, I used to pick up DC comics here and there. Normally if something was going on, like an event or something like that i would kind of get a bit involved and i would buy some books here and there but i was never a regular follower like i was more marvel and i probably still am a bit more marvel but i would always sort of get involved here and there and then when they had flashpoint and they brought back uh, so they gave everybody a brand new number one for dc 52 they decided to make barbara gordon batgirl again so she hadn't been batgirl for like 20 years or something and they and but what they did what they did was they didn't undo the Joker shooting Barbara Gordon. So when the new Fifty Two started, um, all the heroes were meant to have been heroes for like five years. So what they'd done is made them sort of new new heroes in terms of experience, but they didn't have that sort of anything from twenty to sixty years worth of continuity. And what they were kind of were saying was in the last five years of their continuity some of the stuff had happened but not necessarily all of it but the whole joker shooting barbara gordon that did happen however she's now recovered and that kind of thing so they, they decided to bring her back and they'd undone it that um was it steph was it stephanie who's now spoiler oh, yeah. um and um uh, the Batgirl, was it the one who doesn't speak? I've forgotten her name. Um, yeah, Cassandra Kane. Uh, Cassandra Kane, yeah. So that they had never been Batgirl, but recently those two actually have found out that they used to be Batgirl in the previous <laughs> continuity. They've basically because yeah. fans did kick off, and that's how how what and how you ended up with DC Rebirth because yeah. a lot of fans got upset that they undid that a lot of that continuity, and a lot of the a lot of the characters now haven't necessarily remembered these things, but they've been told in a previous continuity you were Batgirl. Yeah. Um, or or you were something else or whatever it was um so they they kind of they they haven't un, they've undone alan moore putting barbara gordon in a wheelchair but they they haven't undone the event they've just made sure that she now recovered this time around but she but they have said like physiotherapy and you know and stuff like that but also i was saying about how the three jokers that came out last year um, I think we should probably talk about this end bit a little bit later on when we talk about about it. But the three jokers kind of references that that whole event throughout. Not so kind of. A, well, no, 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 no. I'll we'll talk about the last, last two pages in a minute. But throughout, <laughs> but throughout the three issues, there, there's there's sort of flashes of like you see her wheelchair 
in a cu- cu- in a cupboard and you see books on things like managing pain management uh, managing your pain and things like that because she still said you know she still sort of struggles with with that that incident now i know the the things you're talking about the last two pages do you want to talk about it now or do you want to talk about that later no we can get into that later okay okay so we're, so the last two pages of the three jokers undoes something that happens uh, towards the end, of uh, the, of the yeah, we can because de- <laughs> I don't think it undid anything. I think, uh, and I think I noticed it more on this reread when, yeah. when, when it gets to the part about the you know, in the killing joke, they do have flashbacks to sort of Joker's origin story. Um, and it gets to the part about oh, his wife and and she died. And like when I was reading it this time, I was like, that really just seems like a crock of shit. Like, <laughs> It just seems well, entirely too convenient that oh, magically, like before you're supposed yeah. to do. Well, okay, maybe not necessarily does it, but fleshes it out more. Yeah, like, I, that's yeah, that would probably be better. But like the yeah. the second on my second read, I was like, this doesn't this doesn't feel right. Like it it doesn't. Well, I, I think there's it, something else there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I think it was a retroactive band aid. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, so yeah. do you want to move on to your next? Yeah. So, I mean, we kind of talked about the legacy and then we've, we've spilled over a little bit into like the modern context. Yeah. So, so when we're talking about, you know, um, one of the most, one of the most well-known phrases in comic book commentary these days is called fridging. Um, and it's in reference to a story when Ron Mars um, rebooted Green Lantern as Kyle Rayner, uh, Kyle's girlfriend. Um, if I remember right, her name was Alex was, murdered and put into a refrigerator by one of the most forgettable bad guys named major force imaginable the, I, mean, I remember the, i remember i remember this i did actually read yeah. green lantern for a while and i, I remember reading it <laughs> well yeah, and, and this it, was such a big thing when this happened yeah and it's so years passed and then um a writer named gail simone who's very well known uh for writing a plethora of projects uh, birds of prey was one of one of the projects yeah. that she kind of uh, spearheaded uh but she's written a ton of stuff very well known for writing wonder woman and, and Batgirl. just very yeah absolutely being very prolific um and having a big impact on titles that she takes on she took exception with that and coined the phrase fridging mm-hmm. uh for uh, for any time a female character is relegated to motivating a hero through a horrendous death a male, um, a male hero right yeah. Yeah, yeah and and so i think it's so to me um that story the the green lantern story it didn't have a, a great deal of depth but um there you know there were moments where kyle and his girlfriend had interactions before she died it didn't give her any real depth i definitely see the argument but my question is why does the killing joke get a pass on this when it is in my mind it's a much more egregious or at least equally egregious example Mm -hmm. barbara gordon in the context of this story is given absolutely no depth her first real introduction is being shot at the door by the joker um and the rest of the story her only response everything she says is meant to propel batman into action like her literal dialogue is save my dad or you can't let him you know what i mean it's Mm -hmm. she's relegated to such a utilitarian plot device and her her brutalization is a is a plot point that is never addressed with any meaningful dialogue or contemplation to me, like given my, my, <clears throat> this is where, this is the whole reason that I brought up my history uh, with this particular topic, because to me, 
the victimization of of someone, especially when it, especially like in this comic, that's not a side point. That's not something that you that's not something that you do without making the story about it in some significant way. You cannot make a I mean that the the thesis of this story is all of us are one bad day from becoming our worst selves. Mm -hmm. And in that context, that one it's just one more bad thing that happened. That is that's the the depth that it's she has been reduced to a checkbox. Exactly. Like here, here is the checklist of terrible things that have happened today. And on that checklist of lost my wallet, dropped my cell phone, car got broken into, oh, daughter got shot and raped. And then all these yep. lewd photographs were taken of her while all of that was happening. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, and, uh, and it's and then on top of that. So you have two main female characters and one of them is Barbara Gordon, which we've discussed. The other one is the Joker's wife mm-hmm. who dies off screen. Right. <laughs> and her only other contribution to the story is to is to make Arthur feel inadequate. She doesn't even do it on purpose, but she's a very, very flat character who has absolutely no depth. Every line she's worried about something. Mm-hmm. That's all she does. She's she's the conscience of the Joker. She is a part of the Joker's personality in this story because they and not to get not to Joker's personality. Sorry, I'll get into this into the review. But to me, this, you know, one thing I'll say about this story and Alan Moore, this is not one of Alan Moore's favorite stories. He has actually said it's one of the weakest stories he's written. Yeah. He said that he was shocked that DC allowed him to do it. Mm-hmm. He called he has called it an ugly story. And all of those things, I think, are I think that 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 takes a lot of wisdom and a lot of growth for a person to kind of look back on one of their what is considered one of their seminal works and have that kind of criticism for it mm-hmm. my exception is that he has never come out and and specifically noted some of the specific failings of the story because it's in my mind it's not the things that that people hail this story for mm-hmm. those are not the strengths Right. The strengths of the story do not lie in its depiction of of sexual brutality. No. It doesn't lie in the even the concept of one bad day can drive us insane. Like that is <clears throat> all there's of it, a lot of content that they could have pulled from that concept by itself. Um, right. Also, like they did a good job with the ambiguity of the ending of the story. Like that that's fantastic yeah. because. It depending is, on yeah. what mood you're in when you read it you can take that last <laughs> that last page to mean one thing or another um yeah. but right before right it i so i'm thinking like 2015 right before the um the animated film was released uh more did do an interview with uh, a website that is no longer around and he said that uh he he thought he put quote far too much melodramatic weight upon a character that was never designed to carry it uh it was mm. too nasty it was too physically violent uh, and I like yes but if yeah. if that's how you like I don't know I, I feel like that doesn't that would not have changed that much from the time that you wrote it to like you going back and taking a look at it because if you take a look at uh V for Vendetta when we read V for Vendetta the yeah. differences between the the way that the, the character of Evie is written in the graphic novel versus the way that we have Evie in the film and now again I know Alan Moore had nothing to do with the film but mm-hmm. The film did a good job in kind of cleaning Evie up and making her into something that was more than just 
uh, like a woman who had these bad things happen. Whereas yeah. when you read uh, V for Vendetta, Evie kind of has the same feel that Barbara Gordon has, where it was like, she's like a child, child prostitute and she doesn't really know her way around these things. And she finds herself in situations where she's always kind of just being pulled along by the, by the men that are in charge. Um, yeah. And for me, that was definitely a stark difference because that's not the Evie that's presented in the film, which the film is what I saw first before I read the graphic novel. Yeah. But I'm just saying, I think, I think that would, maybe that's a pattern now i haven't read um enough alan moore stuff to be able to kind of like lay out a pattern but i just don't think writing women is his strong point at all they always seem to just be devices for the main character to springboard off of into something else yeah yeah well and he and honestly a lot of this work was born in an era where that was kind of the standard <clears throat> where the damsel in distress that that was, you know what I mean? And that, that mm -hmm. female superheroes were derivative of male superheroes. Wonder Woman was kind of the exception. <clears throat> um, and it, yeah, I mean, anyway, there, that's a whole other, but, um, but yeah. Say, with with, with, with um, Barbara Gordon, like I think what you're saying, she's introduced <laughs> on page 19. Right. You see her for three pages and then she comes back again in page 24 and then 25 and then that's it. She's gone. So yep. For for the so why did you pull her in in the first place? Like, well, yeah. I mean, there was another. There, there surely was another way. Like Batman always goes up against Joker, but mm -hmm. like, but if it's yeah. a case of one more bad day away from, because obviously the beginning of this book is he goes to see the Joker and says, you know, I've been thinking about me and you a lot. One of us is going to kill each other, and like, and as you said, yeah. you know, we're all one but one bad day away from kind of going down that path. <laughs> you know, and obviously they kidnap Jim Gordon and they put Jim Gordon through a horrendous, horrific um, thing, which on its own could have just been the thing that we have. Like, didn't, you know, kind of yeah. almost didn't need to involve Barbara because let's be honest, stripping someone naked and sticking them through a roller coaster ride is, I mean, that could put someone yeah. over the edge on its own. Like, you know, like without, without all of the stuff with Barbara Gordon and taking yeah. her in for having no more than five pages in this book and, and, you know, like stripping her naked and shooting her and raping her and, and then taking photos of her and then showing them to her father. I mean, I mean, no wonder I hated this when I was 14. Like, so yeah. um, to, to read this now, considering the, the, this tiny amount of screen time, she gets for such a huge, to be honest, for such a huge impact on on pop culture and the DC universe to have. But she didn't to, even have that big of an impact on the story itself. No, it's it, not. It, have a, yeah. No, it's not have an impact on the actual main story. But that, yeah. But those five pages have such had such an impact to today, like in terms of mm -hmm. uh, yeah. becoming Oracle and and you know even now, like even now addressing um when even in the three jokers just the whole impact on what they even address in the three jokers the impact that the joker had on her and jason todd like just yeah. had just such a horrible like they they you know almost the joker is almost like with for a villain with no powers like the things he does like yeah you know to people but yeah no i, I agree with you that they've kind of taken this this huge which would be like you could say it would be a story on its own the rape and uh, sexual offense like that's happened to her and they've just minimized it to five pages just to push forward the relationship between Batman and the Joker well I just yeah it's such a lie and I can see why you you mentioned Phrygian because that again was an it was something done to push Carl Rayner forward like and this was this Barbara Gordon event was done to push Bruce Wayne forward or Batman 
forward to his confrontation with the Joker. I mean, to be honest with you, they could have just had Jim Gordon taken and he still would have gone after the Joker. Right. It, it was because like even even when when they get off of their the amusement park and and you know Batman comes and gets uh, Gordon out of the cage, Gordon still is literally like no, take him down and do it by the book. Like the, yeah. no, it's it's almost like there was no no impact whatsoever. Like we we could have avoided all of that and he still would have had the same response. Yeah. Like what yeah. what happened to Barbara <laughs> didn't change Jim's perspective at all, which I mean that's the point, right? The well, point so, was so, that you couldn't just force someone into insanity the way that Joker thought that they could. I get that. I understand that. But it yeah. still just didn't feel like and I, you know, I don't know if it's if that was intentional or not, but it just didn't feel like Barbara's plight had an impact on the way that Gordon reacted by yeah. the time the end of the book came. Well, so, and I was going to say, hold on a second. Something I forgot to write down was I don't know if you, um, I've read the first four issues of the Joker book that's out at the moment with James Tinian, um, and basically um, Jim Gordon has been hired by this secret group of people to go and find hunt down the joker and kill the joker and he's very much on the fence of whether to kill the joker or not kill the joker um, but barbara gordon is in that book because uh, she, now she's oracle again even though she hasn't got an injury um her injury hasn't come back apparently her back is playing up a little bit because she can still walk around um so they're still even now alan moore's story is still having an effect on comics as of today so james tinian is taken from that event and and they do reference. Um, there is a scene actually where he does catch up with the Joker, and the Joker does reference how he tied Jim Gordon up naked. So even yeah. you know, was it almost forty years later? We're still having that impact that story. Um, and Barbara Gordon and and Jim obviously have talked many times between each other in those four issues about would he kill the Joker? Like, well, well yeah. not, not sorry, not kill the Joker, but you know, about what's he going to do and stuff like that. And and Jim hasn't yet to tell even you know batman what he's really thinking but the fact that they've still got this story going on now but anyway the i, I do think it was unnecessary to have the sex the sexual assault in this book i don't know what alan moore was thinking yeah, when he you wrote could have this, just shot so. her and left it alone well yeah. to be honest with you the, the shooting thing i so i always remembered the shooting thing like i've never forgotten that but i completely forgot about the sexual assault thing and when i read that even when i reread it this week i was like Oh, that was completely unnecessary. Like, I mean, the photos and the rape and everything, the shooting thing on its own would have just been enough, like for someone to, to be pushed over the edge, like to ha- have left your daughter. Well, bleeding yeah, because on he saw her get shot. Yeah, he saw no, her. He was he was in the room when she got shot yeah. in the first place. So that could have been a big enough impact, especially yeah. if the Joker never told him whether or not she survived, because yeah. they took Gordon away before Joker ever said a word to Barbara. So that could have just been like, let Jim's imagination play that the way that it will and, and see what happens, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and one of the, one of the other, <clears throat> so um, when it comes down to favorite Batman stories, my favorite is probably Batman year one. And the, what, one of the things that I find most frustrating about the killing joke is the, the treatment of Gordon in addition to Barbara he is complete. He's made completely ineffectual, and the only way that he's able to make a positive movement on the plot is by asking Batman to do it. Mm-hmm. And it's it's totally the truth of it is if if you know if this were so in in year one, uh, Gordon goes into a corrupt police department, faces a, a the the most corrupt police officer on the force named Flass, mm-hmm. and he he is able to deal with that like. 
the story of year one is about Batman and Gordon being the same man under completely different circumstances. One is a billionaire billionaire with every asset available to him. And Gordon is a poor cop who has a pregnant wife. And he's, he's just, it's, it's just a very subtle juxtaposition between those characters. And then with one story in the killing joke, Jim Gordon is made an ineffective, um, character who is is less than a sidekick to batman and that's just very frustrating he was he was treated he and barbara were both treated as plot devices and that's and that's all and uh you know batman is the only one who's able to move the plot forward and joker um and everyone else is is just there and that you know i feel like this story is you know in addition to like the the complaints that I have thematically, I actually don't think the quality of the Killing Joke, from a script standpoint, is is anywhere near several other just top tier Batman stories or mm-hmm. or other seminal works in comics. Like it's riddled with '80s action movie like dialogue, calling people scumbag <laughs> and grabbing them by the the scruff and throwing them <laughs> against walls and wanted posters and all these cheeseball things that don't age very well. Um, so it's the the last thing I would I would say about the modern context is Brian Bolland um, introduced a whole different level of comic book um, visuals with the Killing Joke that to this day um, if you think of four or five illustrated versions of the Joker at least one of them is going to be Brian Bolland the the panel of him with his ha- his fingers yes. and his hair and him just cackling mm, with a, yes. framed by the the laughter the um, you know what I mean? The the scene where Batman is pulling him by the scruff across the interrogation table. It's not even him. It's some other guy. And then there's, you know, I mean, there's just, there's five or six incredibly iconic Joker moments in that book. And they've stood the test of time over 32 years. No one has been able to write, to draw a more iconic Joker. There have been some incredible artists, but no one has really surpassed Brian Bolland to depict Joker in a more iconic and visceral way. Mm-hmm. And that is really and, uh, you know, if if you really want to see the impact of Brian Bolland on a script of any caliber, some of his 2000 AD work with Judge Dredd, I mean, he's done so much um, incredible work. He elevates the material. And I think in this case, whether it's because, like Mark said, it's a short story and Alan Moore cut some corners to compress it down to, you know, the 48 or, or 50 pages, whatever it is. I'm not sure, but those corners were cut. A lot of exposition happens through dialogue, which is a really dull way to do it. You have a main character dying off screen and you know what I mean? It's just, I, I just under, even if, even if the, like I said, the thematic shortcomings weren't there, I just don't think that the script for the killing joke matches up with the level of prestige that it gets. It's just extreme. Um, you know, so yeah. I think that's uh, definitely know. something I noticed this time too. Like on on the second read through, the uh, writing didn't keep up with the art for me. Mm-hmm. And usually that's it, it's rare that I read a book and and feel that way. Even yeah. if I don't like the artwork, like when kind of when we talked about Sweet Tooth, did not enjoy the artwork, but that artwork was perfect for the story that Sweet Tooth was telling. Yeah. Um, but with this one, the artwork is it's just miles above. Mm-hmm. It's almost like you, you that lucky time you go to like TJ Maxx or something and you find that Louis Vuitton purse and you're like, hell yeah, Louis Vuitton purse at TJ Maxx. Um, yes, I can relate. Yeah, it's just, it, <laughs> it was it was really jarring this time. And it's probably yeah. just because I've read so much more 
like in mm-hmm. it, in the grand scheme of all kinds of comics since I first read this book. Uh, yeah. But yeah, that was that was really noticeable this time around. It's just that the art and the writing were yeah. galaxies apart. Yeah, well, I think you know that scene you're talking about with Joker, where he, it's a whole background of ha ha ha, mm-hmm. and he's got his fingers through his hair. I mean, I, I you see that picture all the time. They use that piece of art all the time for the Joker, and um, I'd actually forgotten where it was from. And when I reread this the other day, I was like, "Wow, it's from this story." I was like, "Oh, okay." Like, I was like, "This is really good, actually." I was like, "I would love a poster or something framed." Not that I would ever be allowed to put this up in the house, but like. <laughs> Like, I would love that, like, the artwork is so high caliber. And to think this came out, like, in the 80s as well, just how... Because I always yeah. look back on a lot of comics and think the artwork from the sort of 70s and 80s was obviously good for its time. But, like, there's a lot more modern comics that I prefer the art style for than I do a lot of the older stuff. And don't get me wrong, if I read older yeah. stuff, I still enjoy that art because I, but I keep thinking, but I always think for its time, that was really good art. Um, but well, you know versus, what I notice about versus... this too? It's like this, this I think uh, as far as modern stuff, a lot of Batman the Animated Series probably pulls from this style as well. Yeah. Because yeah. In, in reading this, it, while I was reading it again, for this time around, it was kind of like, this is probably the closest style-wise <laughs> to Batman the Animated Series, which which was 1992, so it just would have been four yep. years after um, The Killing Joke. Uh, so, yeah, I definitely picked up on that this time around, too. Yeah, well, I, well, I was, I was going to say, I agree with you, though, versus the script. I, I think there's elements in the script that I felt didn't work. Uh, well, quite a lot. I didn't feel worked. to think the story in general was fairly forced. Um, and I, I, I guess because it was such a short story, um i don't know I, and i didn't really like in all honesty having a joker origin like i've yeah. got to say i think it's unnecessary um i've always liked the fact that we don't know who the joker is like a bit like wolverine like i know they decided to finally answer that question like you said earlier it's just that i mean i know they made the origin of wolverine kind of work but i don't think we needed to know who the joker was so and i know well, yeah and yeah. what What's funny about that, Brian Bolland in the in the deluxe edition, he has mm-hmm. a short a short interview where he he says that essentially where yeah. to him, this is a, an imaginary tale of a lunatic who's not he doesn't know where he came from. Uh, he's just hypothesizing. And that just a, a brief tangent. The other <clears throat> one of the other things I, I have always hated the idea that the Joker was a stand up comic, um, yeah. a, a phrase of a phrase in literary criticism that kind of drives me nuts is too on the nose. But in this case, I feel like it really applies. It's like the Joker didn't need to be a stand-up comic. That doesn't, that doesn't, it, it, him being the Joker is not critical to him pursuing the, the, you know, the act of being funny. Mm. And in, in addition to that, and I, this could have been intentional because a lot of like Alan Moore's scripts, there, there are different levels. Like a lot of the artwork, some of the brilliant strokes in the artwork are from the script, like Joker having that wide brim hat, casting a shadow over his head and making mm-hmm. him look like death. That's, that's in the script. A lot. I mean, his scripts are very detailed. I right. just thought I'd come back to what well, you were talking about. The, um, uh, you know, obviously we were talking about the origin story, yeah. and about him potentially. Oh, the yeah. origin story was sort of part of his maybe his psychotic mind rather than being real. Um, and that I guess could be reading this story in isolation could be could be fact. And if you read the three Jokers, um, there's a scene midway through the three Jokers where so there's. Th- there's three jokers the spoiler um and one of the one of them during um i think it might be issue two because it's three issue mini it 
I actually thought this was actually true. Um, I actually thought this was happening. So one of them shows up at a house, goes in as the Joker and sees this woman and a child and sits down with oh, yeah. dinner and it's really sort of uncomfortable. And I was like, oh, so initially, so I thought, oh, this is a bit weird. She looks like the woman who's his wife from um, The Killing Joke. I was like, oh, that's a bit weird. And then um, it turns out, anyway, this is in his psychosis. So suddenly one of the other Jokers walks in and sees him sitting at a table eating a bowl of noodles with two sort of stuffed animals in the chairs. And he's like, what are you doing? He's like, oh, I'm having my lunch. And then one of the other Jokers goes to touch, like he's got like a plastic doll or something. And he goes, don't touch her. And he's like, and, and I was like, so then I was like, oh, okay. So it's just kind of like undoing that thing, like with that sort of backstory. And yeah. then when you get to the end of the three Jokers, this is the last two pages. If you haven't read the three Jokers, obviously, spoiler, like um, Batman um, no, actually confesses to Alfred that he knows the origin of the, of the Joker. And he said, I've always known. He, like He said a week after the Joker was created, I've always known his origin because he knew about the um, this failed um, co- um, comedic, um, uh, the comedy guy. And in terms of that his wife wanted to escape him, which I did think that was a bit weird because he'd never really given her a reason to escape other than him being a bit of a loser. But <laughs> there was, there had been, there'd been nothing there that we'd seen in Alan Moore, Moore's backstory that he was, yeah. that he was going to hurt her. Um, but anyway, apparently she wanted to, so they actually went back on the last two pages of the three jokers and showed her escaping and going somewhere else, getting on a train, etc. And Batman said, the re- you know, the reason I can never say who he is is because then people will then maybe go looking for her and then the Joker will go looking for her. And that kind of led me to further questions was, well, if you've known a week after he became the Joker, that was still a turning point where maybe he could have been saved. Yeah. So like Batman's, <laughs> Batman's made a choice for the Joker. Yeah. And I, I, I know it's well, comics. We, we need the Joker. He's a bit, he's the big villain. You know, he's Batman's main arch nemesis. If you suddenly went and undid the Joker and turned the Joker into a human again, if you gave the Joker a reason to no longer be the Joker, you've just undone one of DC Comics' biggest villains who's actually even now got a bloody comic book that sells for five dollars a month one of like comics biggest villains in general yeah. well well yeah one yeah. of comics big, and so there's no way they can undo it anyway although jeff johns has given them a way out now or yeah. potentially given the joker a way to become even more psychotic by potentially going and turning his wife and child into joker and that's the thing though now he's so far down the hole that he could go and do that but at that point yeah. so that kind of annoyed me a little bit thinking well jeff johns you've just expanded on something that Alan Moore had left very open. And I agree with you, Jasmine, when I reread this, I was a bit like, you've just given his wife like yeah. an off-screen death. Right. And like, and, and then he just accepts that. Like, he's not yeah. looking for the body. Like, I mean, not that anyone really wants to go and see a dead body, but I wouldn't be able to, <laughs> not that I, well, I wouldn't be able to, if yeah. someone came in and just said like, oh God, it'd be the most horrific thing ever. But someone like, if you're, you know, your loved one has died. Not that I really would yeah. want to see the dead body, but I think I'd need to see it to believe it, especially at a young age. If you're like 85 yeah. years old and someone says, oh, your 85-year-old or 95-year-old partner's died, I think you'd probably accept that. But in your 30s, well, I assume they're in yeah. their 20s or 30s at this point, 
I wouldn't be able to accept that. I'd, I'd say, look, I've, I've got to take me to the to the morgue or whatever. You know, I need to see this. Like, but also, yeah. wouldn't he have to identify the body as well? Like, so, <laughs> yeah. like another another plot hole here. Again, I'm well, I'm probably going through this script probably way too detailed here. <laughs> but I mean, but then again, if he did do all of these things, he would never have gone and put the red hood on and yeah. fall fall into those chemicals. So, well, the oh yeah, I remembered what I was going to say, and it it might have been intentional he was never funny. Like even mm. as the Joker, the only time he's funny is when he makes the moonbeam joke at the end or the flashlight joke at the yeah. end. That's yeah, the only that funny thing he quite, says. That actually is quite a good joke. And it might be on purpose. That's what I, yeah. I'm kind of giving Alan Moore the benefit of the doubt, but everything else he says is a dad joke. That's awful. It's like a pun. That's awful. Mm. Yeah. But the funny thing is like Jeff Johns rewriting that, that with his wife kind of doing that retrofit, it completely undoes the killing joke because the whole theme is a good man can turn into a bad man with one bad day if he was yeah. already victimizing his wife then he's just a a crap guy turning into a crappier guy oh, yeah. <laughs> you know? so uh, but i think that's the rub i yeah. think he thought he was could, a good guy yeah like i think that yeah. that that is the problem um because uh mark you were saying like you if batman had stepped in maybe he could have saved him and i i disagree because i think Oh, no, I only Once said maybe. Once he had already it turned, it's, it's a gamble. Too late. No, it's yeah. a gamble. Yeah. But I, I, once people cross yeah. that threshold, I don't think you can bring them back. Uh, like if he would have to have caught Joker before Joker became Joker, uh, like well before, no, like, my while point, his wife was still point, around and all that stuff. My point was that Batman made that decision for him, like rather than you know, like and even when you read the three Jokers, he keeps trying to talk because Jason Todd. Jason Todd is is it isn't just isn't just vigilante. Jason Todd crosses the line over to villain throughout the book and then comes back again. And and the whole thing throughout the three jokes is is Batman trying to save Jason Todd. But like, why can't he do that? You know, if he had potentially an opportunity to do that a lot earlier in the day of the Joker's career. But well, I think I that's what Jasmine is saying. That that even that only the Joker thinks. Only the Joker thinks that he could have been redeemed. Yeah, it, he he was already who he was, you know what I mean, and that the <clears throat> the bad day just gave him an excuse to be that crappy person. Yeah, but when he, but like a lot of crappy people, when he remembers history, he's like, it's not my fault. All this terrible stuff happened, and I became a bad guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, it's yeah. Like, yeah. But, it probably is more likely that he there's no going back. But I just feel, yeah. a little bit of me was like. Maybe it could have been undone. Of so course. there you have it. Mark is the only optimist on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I don't think it could be undone. I think that the gamble there is too high because we know how psychotic the Joker is. Yeah. Like, and even in the book, even in the killing joke, when he's going around the circus with the guy selling him the circus. And I was like, this guy's nuts, man. I was like, he's walking around this circus with the Joker and yeah. he's like not concerned about his lifespan at all. And then when he says, Yeah, I'm gonna, you know, blah blah blah, you know, you silver tongue, you know, you sold it to me, etc. I was like, okay, so far it's going well for this circus owner. I was like, <laughs> okay. And and then and then he and then he kill and then well, he's, he can't but he pretty much kills him. And yeah. I was like, no one can trust the Joker, basically. Yeah. Just don't go near this guy. Like, if yeah. you see him, just get out of there. <laughs> Like, yeah. and, and, like, and the trouble is now, like, with Practical his wife, advice from with us now knowing his wife and child is alive, the gamble would be too big to, to like, oh, yeah. try and say, like, look, you know, I know who you are, I know your story, and I know your family is still alive. That, that, that would, tr- that would change like his entire 
drive as a character. Well, it would maybe never this, work maybe this they is, would do the same thing that they did in the Killing Joke, and then well, maybe those, this is they deliberate. would just be fodder. For well, no maybe reason. this is yeah. Well, maybe this is deliberate. Maybe this is leading on to a follow up at some point where the Joker does eventually find out they're alive, and that story would be something which would be very dark. I think. So. But I don't think it matters at this point because yeah, I think everything yeah. that he's done uh, after that bad day. Um, yeah. It, like you can't go back to it you can't go back and erase 30 years of your own history oh, no, and be like oh no, I, I wish don't. I hadn't done that no 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 I don't think no I, ju- I, I, I all I was saying was maybe at the beginning could it have been undone I don't think yeah. him being the Joker for however many years he's been 10 20 years whatever uh, it, there's no way of him going back to being the the, the failed comedian again and and the, and the housewife the, the husband and with the housewife yeah. and stuff like that um yeah. i don't know i don't see that happening i'm saying if he finds them out that they're alive now think yeah. of the trouble they would be in like that's what i'm trying to, that was what i should yeah. say like, yeah. yeah they would not be in a, they would be having a bad day of their own i can assure you oh, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. yeah do you want to talk about the movie equally um, yeah, so there, there, like we said at the very beginning, there was an animated version came out in 2016. Um, it it uh, does nothing to add to the, <laughs> the original <fridging. laughs> story, and it does not help itself because this film is about an hour and fifteen minutes, hour and twenty minutes maybe. Um, and first, first half an hour, yeah, is the brand first new entire half hour is nothing but. Uh, Batgirl and Batman working together and it's like the, I, I was so confused at the very beginning of this film that I was like th- maybe this was mislabeled and maybe I am not watching the killing joke like I thought that I would be watching yeah. um, it is so out of place it is so jarring it's like I don't know what we're doing here and yeah. it it has to me this animated film it carries on one of the worst and most ridiculous tropes in all of media which is yeah. the mentor falling or the mentee falling for the mentor um and there's a sequence where uh batgirl and batman have sex on a roof of some (laughs) ridiculous first of all i i am 100 positive that nobody can get out of those bat suits that fast that's just my opinion (laughs) on that one i think the moment's Uh, gone by the time you get out of those lord (laughs) she ripped that shirt off so fast and i was like i'm pretty sure those suits don't come apart like that but what do i know um But it was it was so weird because the entire first and it's it's literally the first thirty minutes. It, like after yeah. the thirty minute mark, we finally get to literally almost like a page by page retelling of the Killing Joke. Um, but the first thirty minutes is just like, okay, yeah. so Barbara is this newcomer that is training under Batman that is pining after the bat, <laughs> but she's also like being taunted by some wannabe uh, crime boss's nephew. Yeah. And it's just like her entire existence, her entire point in the killing joke was just to be like a human toilet. Basically she's used and abused and thrown away literally. And then this film does, does the exact same thing, but it gives you like 30 more minutes of her (laughs) being used and abused and thrown away. Like, it's just like, when they, well, I was gonna say, like you, when I put this on, because I put this on today, like for the episode we're recording now, I, I'm pretty sure I watched this, but I can't remember entirely. But anyway, so I rewatched it today, the film, 
I'm pretty sure I rewatched it because I do remember that sex scene thing with Barbara Gordon and, and Batman. And at the time thinking, what on earth is this? Yeah, that was like, so and like, weird. And like, because I've read, like I say, I've read DC on and off for years. I used to be a huge Nightwing fan and I know, mm-hmm. um, and I've started rereading Nightwing again, but like Barbara Gordon and Dick Grayson have always been the comic book couple. Like, you know, yeah. they, they break up, they give out together, they break up, they give out together. So when in the first 30 minutes she, she sleeps with Batman, I was like, where did that come from? Like yeah. it's always been Batman and Catwoman and Dick Grayson and and Barbara Gordon. Like, I mean, it was ne- it was her and uh, yeah, it was her and Dick Grayson even in the Schumacher film. I mean, so... yeah, I mean, yeah, it's always been it's always been that. Like anyway, so that that is first thirty minutes. I was like you say, like completely disjointed. So then right. I thought, well, so once I sort of realised what was going on, I thought this is before they set together. I was like, although I could see there was this weird relationship, I I didn't think it was going down that road, but. <laughs> I was a bit like, okay, I can see what we're doing here. Like they're trying to flesh out Barbara a bit. Oh, like, wow. before she gets Whoever shot. Whoever thought that that's uh, what they were doing, I'm <laughs> hesitant to ever watch anything that you attach your name to again because that is not what you did at all. Yeah. You didn't you didn't help yeah. yourself, you didn't help the character. There was you didn't even give Barbara any additional depth. Like yeah. you didn't give us a reason to be attached to her in the first place because she comes across as this whiny pining victim of like no i'm really great or or like she's trying to prove something to herself and to everyone else like i'm just as capable of being out here as everyone else is and do you want to know who's behind it directed directed by sam lou and written by brian azarello azarello does a lot of stuff for dc so (laughs) (laughs) well yeah sorry go ahead no i'm just saying like i i completely understand why you would add a a segment that sort of gives you some kind of context of Barbara Gordon, but what they added did not do a damn thing to help the actual story. The only thing I liked really, so once you get into the, once you get past those first 30 minutes, the next sort of 40 minutes or so is pretty much line by line from the Killing Joke graphic novel. There's so much of it. As they're saying it, I'm like, I could have my graphic novel in front of me and be reading it along, Mm -hmm. which I thought that bit I thought was good in terms of they literally did adapt that last 40 minutes from the graphic novel. Now, they should have probably just done that. Like, they didn't need to add that first 30 minutes. They could have, but they just needed a story. I was going to say the bit I did like. Well, yeah, yeah, they could have done a different half an hour, which Mm -hmm. had a different story, which was was something we might have enjoyed. But anyway, so the one bit I really did like that they added was the uh, mid-credits scene uh, Mm -hmm. where Barbara Gordon is on the phone to her father and goes into this cupboard and then it opens up into a room and you see the Oracle symbol show up on the screen. And I was like, okay, that was nice. I thought, like, you, you've kind of given some hope for Barbara and that she's still a hero and she's still kicking and she's like, I've still got work to do. And I was like, yeah, okay, I like this. Like, yeah, that was the only good thing it did because at the end of the book, uh, basically, we still assume that Barbara is still in a hospital bed. I mean, yeah. there, there's yeah. no... There's yeah, no ex- hope that anything good is coming down Barbara's way anytime soon. Yeah, it's yeah. like, oh, oh, I yeah. Like that. Oh, I yeah, like her. That. Forgot about her. Yeah, yeah. 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 She, she's well, still fucked up in the hospital bed. Don't worry. She's fine. Yeah. Well, and that's that's the other thing. So the yeah, th- that first 30 minutes, first of all, it destroyed one of the most beautiful elements of the killing joke. So the the framing device, one of the one of the visual echoes of the theme is the raindrops or ripples in water and reflections and and this kind of duality it's and at the beginning you have the raindrops at arkham asylum he goes in and it sets 
the tone. It sets this really intentional kind of pacing. And to start anywhere but there uh, kind of jars the, the, the power of the ending and some of those themes coming back because it, it, it is a really nice bookend regardless, regardless of, of everything else. And, and then, like you said, the, the thing that bugged me was Barbara is a, is a girl like her character is a girl. It's not a woman. Like, mm-hmm. and, and that's, that character has evolved a great deal um, in the modern, in the modern era to be a, a much more capable character. And Gail Simone being one of the, the people who helped do that. But her best friend is a, a very cat- catty, stereotypical homosexual guy. Yes. And both of them play into the most negative mm-hmm. attributes of their stereotypes. Yes. Like there's no depth in their relationship beyond who she wants to sleep with. And she's motivated by this fantasy, this power fantasy, like you were talking about. It's like, it, if anything, it actually made the problems in the graphic novel worse. worse. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. I, I thought that this film, if if I had seen this film before I'd read this book, yeah. this, I, I just feel like you're going out of the frying pan and into the fryer. Like, yeah. what is happening <laughs> here i just i could not for the life of me understand it and it really took me a good 10 minutes like i literally like paused this movie and double checked my settings and i was like I, w- I went online and i was like uh the killing joke like i did so much stuff and i was like <laughs> i cannot possibly be watching the killing yeah. joke i just can't that, that that is not what i'm watching right now um yeah. and i just i didn't I didn't understand that because I felt like I understood what they were trying to do. Like, yes, again, this is your perfect opportunity to expand on a character who, who, what happens to this character is supposed to be the thing that destroys one of the good guys in the book itself. Um, So yeah, it'd be nice to have some backstory or to just form some kind of attachment with this character, which you could not have formed in five pages of the graphic novel. Yeah. Uh, But they don't do that at all. They make it, they make Barbara even more polarizing and pathetic in the film than than the way that they treated her in the book so it's almost like you it was already a bad draw in the book Mm -hmm. and then you took a bad thing and you made it worse (laughs) you like you didn't progress this at all it's like they thought let's go to town on really really like driving home how badly to treat women in the book right and let's let's really go to town how badly to treat women but in a film yeah she gets objectified by the the crime boss right yeah, yeah. she she is pining after batman who everybody on the planet knows that batman is the most unavailable person like <laughs> in the history of comics i'm sure like right. i'm sure you got a better chance with skeletor than you do with batman but that's a whole nother story like you you are literally like it's just trope after trope after trope. like there's no thought put into well, barbara I didn't at like all. It. Like, I didn't like the sex scene in general. Like, I mean, I mean, logistics aside, ripping off your costume, whatever. But I didn't like how logistics aside. she's like, well, I mean, I can't imagine that. Like, I think mean, Jasmine said it, getting those rubber costumes yeah. off. Yeah. Like, you know, they probably went to stand up. Can you unzip me? They're zipping like, you know, and peeling. Like, no, no, like, no. And, and, and that and shit and how just much, fly like, off. Yeah, like, you know, but at this point, you know, everyone's like, you know what, actually, the moment's passed. But, like, but no, all that aside, then she's like calling him up, trying to get involved. And he's like, nah. Nah, she's like, well, can I do this? Nah, like, and he's like, she's like, well, can I get involved? No, and he's, and then she even says it because we slept together, and he's like, bye, Barbara. Like, and I was like, okay, <laughs> so, so I was like, basically, they've slept together. He's got what he wanted. 
Now he's like, yeah, I'm done with this. Like, like uh, I'm going to call Robin. So, like, you know, like, um, I thought that, I don't know. Like, I, I think the idea of a half an hour setup for us to try and get to know Barbara before she gets shot to build to make that more impactful is a great idea. How they did it in this movie, Horrible. they did it badly. It was a very poor um, execution. But what I would like to say about this film is Mark Hamill, yes. his voice as the Joker is absolutely amazing. He does yeah. a Joker really well. Um, I, I, you know, I know he gets typecast quite badly with Luke from Star Wars, but he's had a successful voice career and occasionally showing up as the trickster in the flash here and there. Um, but he, he, his voice, when you, you know, it's Mark Hamill, but his voice career. Uh, so his voicing the Joker yeah. is just so good. But oh, he also yeah, did yeah. such a good job with the diversity of like the stages of Joker that you see in the yeah. film. Yeah, like we did. get that well. iconic Joker voice that we're all familiar with, but we also get a total yeah. version of that when it's the flashbacks and it's in the black and white and, yeah you did color like i thought that was really great also because batman the animated series is one of my favorite things of all time yep. forever in perpetuity i yeah. only ever hear mark hamill's voice in my head whenever the joker comes up <laughs> always yeah it is all true. it is never heath ledger it is never jack nicholson it is never troy baker it is always <laughs> mark hamill always yeah yeah same for me <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah and no, i i think and also the animation for this uh movie i thought was really really good as well really strong like, yeah. I, I, I mean dc's I actually, never really had a problem with their animation department no no but yeah. when i sat down to watch this like the issues within the movie itself if you take them away i enjoyed watching this visually i thought visually it was really good and mark hamill really kind of saved the day here and even kevin conroy obviously his batman was just just fantastic so yeah. um but those unfortunately they 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 really did mess up with how they handle barbara in the movie yeah. so but if you took if you just kind of ignore that for a second like the movies was very visually good and the voice acting was very strong so yeah. i enjoyed those parts i did not enjoy how they really went to town on barbara yeah yeah like i really want to see somebody kind of i don't know take this and do it actually to be fair the three jokers was really handled well by well, jeff johns like, well i'll tell um, you the Batman Beyond Return of the Joker is a very similar narrative uh, done with Tim Drake. And it's um, it 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 kind of deals with some of that. Um, anyway, I I prefer that handling. Of course, I haven't seen it in a long time, but uh, Under the Red Hood was yeah. also a very good film. Yeah. Yeah. That was fantastic. It was very dark. Uh, yeah. Jason Todd comes back and he's like, fuck this. We're killing the Joker. Like, don't try to stop me. I am killing this guy. I'm sick of this. And Batman yeah. is like, no, don't, please. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so wrapping it all up, Stephen, what, what, yeah. if you, if you had to kind of summarize, like, yeah, why, I, why do you think that this book is as polarizing as it is? Honestly, it is, um, it, from one page to the next, a traditional Batman fan will have no idea what's going to happen. And I think that that's compelling. I think that that's a powerful thing to have on your side as a writer. Uh, ultimately, though, I feel like the execution of this concept uh, was somewhat juvenile. Um, and and it was not to the level that, that Alan Moore is capable of. Um, and its overall treatment of the, the female characters was just kind of something that I feel like is... Um, pretty much kind of inexcusable and uh and even more atrocious um 
kind of it's a it's a better example of fridging than I think the story that that exemplified that concept. Um, Brian Bolland's artwork, I I think that it is. Uh, I think that people recognize the influence it has, but I think that when they're talking about the Killing Joke, it's often under under the shadow from Alan Moore because mm-hmm. people just by default respect him when they talk about comics. But to me. Uh, Brian Baldwin's contribution far outshines um, the the script, so that's my personal my personal take. I think there are much better Batman stories out there for me. Um, so you yeah. think it just kind of gets a pass because of Alan Moore's previous acclaim? Yes, and and honestly, in the time that it came out, a lot of the considerations that condemn this work uh, were not in the public consciousness. Mm-hmm. It wasn't comic books were were in almost the 80s, ex- they were very niche. They were, and they were almost exclusively males. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, fourteen to fourteen to, you know, twenty-four, thirty years old, and it was, and without getting too deep into it, like most parents had no idea um, how serious some comics were getting at that time. Yeah. Um, anyway, so yeah, I think Alan Moore's reputation has created an umbrella for this work, and honestly, for for some others too. So, how about you, Mark? Yeah, I think um, like you said about the the age thing. So I remember when I started to read comics around ninety four, I think, and there was definitely the split in the comic shops over tone from family friendly to because I think Image was putting a good push in comic shops as well. So I think over the so the ten years sort of following this, we were starting to see a large split between family friendly comics versus more adult comics. And now, if you go into a comic shop, you probably say ninety flipping 99% of books are more for adults. There's hardly, hardly anything I would say that's family friendly. And well, they've like created this... an entirely new category now called all ages. Well, yeah. yeah. So, well, yeah. And, well, let me ask you this. So, sorry, this is a big tangent and I'll make it very quick, but my daughter loves My Hero Academia. Mm-hmm. And if she had, if X-Men had been the X-Men of the 80s, I think she would have loved X-Men. But there's that X Men of the '80s is no longer here. Yeah, it's no it's no longer something that a child that age can enjoy. The themes are too heavy for seven. Yeah, but My Hero Academia yeah. is very much like the comics I grew up with. Yeah, um, it's just a, that's what I mean when I say that Marvel and DC just keep misinterpreting why manga is is so big. Mm-hmm. So, no, I, yeah, I, I would say so. Things like the Killing Joke is kind of pushed forward how comics. Are, are viewed and received and i do remember yeah. reading this at the time as like i said as a 14 year old and i didn't i didn't like this i was not ready for that kind of thing i was yeah and i guess it's like you you know we both talked about we've got children i don't i didn't want to at 14 read comics like this now i appreciate having comics like this because as an adult like you know guys around the corner from 40 I, I i do think having dark comics like this is, is great you know to sit down as an adult and i you know even some of my friends we've talked about this as well how the uk and the us are very different in the uk to say you're a comic book reader it's like what the fuck like you know <laughs> and and over here over in america you say you read comics and it's like oh yeah cool man what'd you read like and i you know i've been on holiday in america and mentioned to americans i read comics said oh cool yeah man so do i like it's just like a normal thing and yeah. i get like teased pretty much over here by most people like the that don't like comics and they're like straight away, oh, do you read Spider-Man? I'm like, yeah, I read Spider-Man. Anyway, I'm really going off on tangent, tangent, tangent myself. <laughs> and, um, but I, I, I think the, the influence on this obviously is clearly felt 40 years on. Um, is it the best book ever written? No, it's not. Um, do I think everything that's handled in it is handled well? No, I don't. Probably could have, no, not probably. It would have helped a lot by him expanding on things and not making this like a 50 or 60 page 
story and i guess maybe that's all dc gave him at the time i'd, I'd love to know how much was cut out of this um or yeah. i'd love to know is did alan moore even give any consideration to bob gordon probably not i, I don't know putting words in his mouth maybe he did maybe it just got cut out so yeah. I would love to see, I would. I don't think Alan Moore's ever going to go back and work for DC, but if he did, I would love to see maybe a director's cut version of Alan Moore. And like you said, Jasmine, earlier, him making comments about how he's, how in hindsight, it's not a story that he, he you know, he's looks proud of. fondness yeah. and proud. Yeah, maybe if he could have a chance to redo The Killing Joke, maybe he would have taken a different stance on a lot of it. Maybe he would have not had what happened with Barbara. Barbara in it. I think her getting shot's never going to get taken out of it, but yeah. the other things could have been done. We've been cut out of it, and they're they're unnecessary for this plot. Uh, the art, though, is phenomenal, considering as well, like the eighties. And so, because one of the things it doesn't I've... look like the rest of the stuff that was coming out in the eighties. Yeah, like, yeah. No, this no, doesn't no, look any. Like... Well, again, you know, artist consideration and all that stuff, but like this doesn't yeah. look like anything like v for vendetta you know i want to yeah. talk about the the squares though you know like oh, um, yeah. and, they, and they did do this in the three jokers that they use the square panels mm-hmm. um which is you know um very like they do obviously use square paneling but not anywhere near the effect that they they had but one of the things i did love as well was the flashbacks how the flashbacks are all in black and white other than the color red yeah except um, for like the yeah. shrimp or the lobster or whatever yeah, the but, hell they have but all those scenes. things all those things are red so yep. like anything that's red like it is is it is red and then everything else is black and white so yes. i did think that so that that was pretty cool for me like yeah i mean it's not a book i probably would in i wouldn't enjoy going back to reread this like it's not i'm glad we reread it because i've enjoyed this conversation about it but i don't particularly enjoy this story so yeah that's that's you know i i didn't have the chance to read this as a kid but when i was a kid i I was always reading above my level. So by the time I was 11, I had already read uh, the Thomas Harris, like Silence of the Lambs sort of trilogy. So I was, I was used to reading very heavy themes, but like I said, I didn't really do comics. And so to me, it was new because I didn't realize comics got that dark. And that was kind of you know, by the time I read this in like the early 2000s or the late 2000s, it was kind of just like, there's a whole other realm of publishers out there that are making comics that are more adult. And I think, um, I, but I think that this book was probably like a gateway to that, uh, to this, this book was a gateway to, again, like comics just actually being aged up. Like we're moving out of the PG, PG 13, and we're moving into rated R stuff Mm -hmm. but mainstream like we're we're taking the comics and we're we're making mainstream adult comics so in that regard i don't think that the impact of this book is ever going to be forgotten um but but speaking specifically as to the impact that it had on the industry not the impact that it had on the stories that are told in comics but just an industry-wide impact um overall i think that this book is probably always going to be talked about in that regard uh mm-hmm. but upon second read as i am older this story this story by itself is just incredibly forgettable mm. i don't think yeah it's not a strong story but um but art, i think well it's not a strong story standalone but clearly they took a lot from it um mm-hmm. because maybe again back in the 80s because it was so unique to what was going on right then it was massively impactful back then 
And yeah. should something come out like this right now, it probably wouldn't have the same level of impact. So, well, I mean, if you think of, you could think of it in terms of like the MCU, right? So in 2008 or 2009, when we got the first Iron Man film, it was like nobody knew who this guy was really, except for hardcore, like a contingent of hardcore Marvel fans. But for the most part, Iron Man was just kind of like a third tier character that was nowhere near as popular as, say, like X Men or Spider Man. Yeah. Um, but the way that Marvel has taken 24 films over 16 17 years and interconnected them and interwoven them you can literally still see the influence of iron man one in black widow in black panther like you can see that thread being carried over and i think that's kind of what the killing joke does if you're reading a batman story in 2021 you again like with three jokers came out in 2020 like you you can see the impact of a story from 2020 that yeah. is still pulling from a story from 1988, you know? So I think, I think as far as that goes, again, this, this is going to be that book that fans of the characters are always going to be able to refer back to be like, oh, that reference in this book, you know, this could be like 2025, like they're referencing yeah. a book from 1988, blah, blah, blah. So I think that the threading <laughs> that this book sort of put out there and became canon is always going to be there. Yeah. But that does not mean that this is like the ultimate end all be all Batman mm, book. No. In yeah. My yeah. So uh what are we doing next month, Jasmine? Oh wow, next month. We're we're not taking it easy on ourselves. We're doing another hard topic next month. So next month for the August late to the party book club, we are gonna be reviewing Persepolis by Marginez Satropi. Uh, that is going to be probably toward the end of August, but uh, I'm, I'm actually really excited about the guests that we're going to have for that one. So Man. we're, we're keeping with the hard themes. So be sure to join <laughs> us in August. So you can follow Stephen everywhere or at it's at Fox storytelling, Instagram, Twitter, occasionally Twitter, I would say he comes on and off of it, but main, <laughs> mainly Instagram. Um, and, but you can follow us, Geeks and Niche, we're everywhere, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, etc. And we've got our own personal ones, which you can follow us on as well. And, um, but Stephen, where can people uh, listen to us? Yeah, you can, you can catch the podcast on Podbeam, Google, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, really anywhere that you can listen to podcasts. Um, have a listen and give us a five-star review. Um, please share us with any of your geeky friends you, you think might enjoy it. Um, Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next month. Bye. Bye. Bye.